the aftermath of it, which was really nice. Not much wind for the most part, and a lot of rain, over two inches, I think, in some areas down here, which is a lot for this area. So, appreciate that, but I appreciate the sunshine coming back, too. Well, we're one week away from Feast of Trumpets. It comes uh, next Sabbath. So we'll be meeting uh, here at 1 o'clock uh, out on the phone lines. Uh, to be the regular time that we normally have Sabbath services at 1 o'clock on the Feast of Trumpets. <coughs> We've been saying it's getting close, and now it's almost here. Only three weeks from the Feast of Tabernacles, which also begins on the Sabbath this year. The Jews and most of the churches of God are about two days late due to postponing uh, illegitimately what the heavens tell us. They don't like what the heavens say, so they simply change it. And that's the way mankind is with God. They don't like what He says, they simply change it. Uh, we are here for a different purpose, and that is to find out what God does say and then change us. Not change His Word to fit what we want, but change us to fit His Word. There's a vast difference there in approach and attitude and what we ought to be doing. <clears throat> well, we came down to the second epistle of John last week. Uh, he concluded First John by saying the whole world is abiding in sin and wickedness, and that we're to look to Christ to come and to change that and to keep ourselves from idols in the meantime. And an idol is anything that comes between you and God in any way, whether it's your human nature or material materialism or vanity or ego of one kind or another, or a different doctrine than what the Bible teaches. And he talks about that as we continue on here into the second epistle of John. I did dip into this a little bit at the end of last week's sermon because I'd promised to show you how the church is the mother. And uh, let's review that now in verse 1 of Second John. He says the elder, and John was, of course, at that time not only uh, an elder in terms of the office that he held, uh, all offices in the church of, of, a, of a ministerial connection are uh, an office of an elder. It's just a matter of what uh, level <coughs> we're talking about. This, this elder happened to be an apostle, ordained to that position by Christ himself. There were very few apostles, even though some claim today that we're all apostles since we're sent. Uh, well, being sent uh, has more ramifications than that. Uh, it's a specific sending for specific purposes that creates an apostle, not just anyone sent somewhere by anyone. Uh, we are called of God. We are called to come out of the world. Being called brings you to the church. It brings you to God. Being sent means that you were sent from God to do something in particular. And most church members have not been sent anywhere to do something directly by God. Now, Herbert Armstrong was called 
of God, as we all have been. But then, he was given a commission and was sent to do a calling work to the whole world, which he accomplished. And then he died. Now, John was writing here to the elect, the elect lady. These are people who had been called in his time, from the time of 31 A.D. when Christ began the church there in Acts 2, and the apostles began to do signs and wonders. So, these people had been called, and at, at that point in time, he was saying they were elect. In other words, uh, there is a calling, and then there comes an election in which God begins to show that he is going to use those people in the future as the bride of Christ. So this is the elect lady. Not that each individual necessarily at that point had been elected because there is always a chance of falling away. Uh, but the church was, was elected. That era, the first era, the Ephesian church, uh, had been elected of God to do certain things and had accomplished them. So he's the last apostle living at this point and the, probably the oldest elder, and certainly the only apostle. So he's writing to the lady, the church overall, and to her children. So the church is depicted here as the lady, the mother of the children. So we are all children of the church in that sense. It is a spiritual analogy that God uses. So he has the church set up like a family. Uh, father, mother, children. He is, of course, the father. But even then, John speaks of his, his children as if he were in the position of a father. Not that we call him padre or father on a spiritual, uh, in a spiritual way or an office. He was an apostle, not a father. But these children of the mother of the church had come into the church under him, under the other apostles as well, but he'd been there from the very beginning. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm going to have to be careful and not push my voice today. I had a bad cold early in the week, and I thought I was going to drown for three days. My nose just ran and ran and ran, and then Thursday morning it just sort of started clearing up, so... Uh, thankfully, uh, the voice isn't too bad and it didn't go into my chest, but I can feel a little scratchy there, so I'd better be careful and kind of back off here. When I start a sermon or teaching or preaching, I, I tend to push my voice, and uh, I don't think today it's going to handle it because of the, the cold, the dregs of it still there in my throat. So anyway, I'll try to back up here and, and not push it. Anyway... So the church and her children, the members, whom he loved in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. So uh, he loved them, and there are others that had lived and were now dead, including all the other apostles and a lot of members who had lived, uh, who had known the truth. So he's saying there's a history here. Now, for the truth's sake, 
which dwells in us and shall be with us forever. <coughs> Excuse me, this is going to probably be a problem. For the truth's sake, which dwells in us and shall be with us forever. Now, once you learn the truth, you can never turn from it. Remember what James said about not departing? I think we went over that last week. Uh, once you know the truth, you can't turn back from it. Uh, if you turn away, it's impossible for you to turn back again. Uh, there's something that happens there to your mind and to your emotions and to re the relationship with God. Uh, and it will be with us forever if we keep hold of it. And he tells us a little later on to hang on to it. We'll live forever in the kingdom of God with truth. Uh, no falsity, no lies, no untruth, absolute, total truth forevermore. Now, truth suffers in the world today. There's very little of it around. And in fact, God said that here at the end time, there would be someone sent who would restore all things because they had not been restored. Now, Herbert Armstrong was a minor variety of that. He was not the end time Elijah, the last one. Uh, and there were a lot of things that he didn't get restored that we've learned some since, and probably there's still some to learn. So he didn't restore at all. He restored quite a bit. Uh, but the truth is to be with us forever, and truth has to be renewed here at the end. Well, certainly not being renewed in the world. They're going further and further from any truth that they might have. And most people in the church are in the mode of departing from truth than they are in learning more truth. That is unfortunate, but very true. You can't have a great falling away without people starting to leave the truth, starting to depart from it, uh, to lose one doctrine at a time uh, until it's gone. And once you turn your back on one, you will lose another and another and another until it is gone. You cannot go backward. You have to move forward. We have to be always growing in the grace and the knowledge of Emmanuel. So he says, grace be with you, Mercy and peace from God the Father and from Emmanuel the Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Now, he asks for mercy and peace, and you can't have the truth and the, and lo, and the love of God. Uh, you can't have peace apart from truth and love, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, God says he's going to bring peace in the final uh, chapter of the church of God in this era uh, there in Haggai. He says, in this place will I bring peace. So truth has to be restored and love has to be restored, the keeping of the commandments, before peace can be achieved. So God is going to call a remnant who are willing to learn truth, to seek truth, attitude of accepting truth, and keeping the commandments, loving God and loving their brother, which is the keeping of the commandments. And thereby peace will come to the end-time church of God. We are far from peace right now in the church anywhere, uh, including right here. Uh, so we have to do what is necessary 
uh, in learning truth and learning obedience and love if we're to be a part of what is coming. I researched something this morning that I'll probably give in a sermon very shortly, which I think will be new to us. Uh, something we've not been doing that I think the Bible clearly shows should be we should be doing. I'll not get into it today, but uh, very soon. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I found of your children walking in truth. Now, one of the things he was facing was that there was a departure from truth in that age, just as there has been in this age. I was just reading uh, about some of that uh, on the Internet this morning, about how Joseph Koch gave his famous Christmas sermon on January the 3rd of uh, 1995, in which he disallowed many of the truths that we had learned uh, from the Bible and from Herbert Armstrong, and he said they were no longer valid. So we have had a falling away just as they did back in John's day, and when he heard news from the church here and there, that which was left, and there wasn't much left because it basically disappeared after John died around 100 A.D., the church just disappeared. Uh, nothing heard of it again, really, until Herbert Armstrong was called 1,900 years later. Uh, it was just gone. Now, you can kind of trace Sabbath keepers here and there through the Middle Ages and even in the early United States, especially in Rhode Island, and, but here and there through the colonies. But it wasn't strong, and it wasn't really organized. So... It was just sort of dormant. So he rejoiced greatly that there were still people who were walking in the truth. And I think we can say the same today. So many have fallen away and spiritually died or have been in spiritual famine and pestilence and are so spiritually sick that they can't move forward. Now we need to be walking in truth. As we have received the commandment from the Father... And now I beseech you, lady, again the church, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now what, what could be more basic than that? Religion all talks about love, but religion basically does away with commandments which define love. So he knew that there were people uh, who were still following the commandments. Because that is the love of God. But if you follow the commandments, you're going to love one another. And that's the greatest thing. But it's the thing that is so easily overlooked. And they had that problem in that day, just as we do today. And love is going to diminish to the point that people will actually betray one another to the death to save their own hides. That's coming very, very shortly, just in front of us. And he reiterates then what love is in verse 6. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. First John 5, 3 says, this is the love of God, that you keep the commandments. And he says essentially the same, well, says exactly the same thing in different words right here. We walk in his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, we should walk in it. 
from the beginning of Genesis. We were to walk in the commandments of God. Adam and Eve broke the first one when they worshipped Satan instead of God. And that all led to Cain killing his brother Abel and the breaking of the commandments all the way through. And they knew of the commandments way back then. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a sin to do what they did. God could not have punished them for breaking the first commandment if he hadn't explained what it was. So, uh, the commandments had been there from the very beginning of man's experience. And, of course, they were there at the beginning of Christ's ministry, the Sermon on the Mount, where he not only reiterated that they were to be kept, but they were to be kept in spirit, not just physically. So, you've heard it from the very beginning, we should walk in it. That was a revelation to most of us who came out of Protestant and Catholic churches uh, into the truth. We'd been taught by churches, supposedly God's churches, that there were no commandments. And they all say, well, we've got to have love, but they don't know what love is. They think it's just an emotion. No, it's walking in the commandments, which is hard to do. For many deceivers are in into the world who confess not that Emmanuel is coming in the flesh. Now here again, he says that you have to con- confess, to know, to admit, to acknowledge that Christ is coming in the flesh. That is, he is living his life in us. So it's more, there are people who say, well, we confess to Christ. No, they don't confess the things that Christ did. Now, what does John keep saying over and over and over again? You've got to keep the commandments. You've got to keep the commandments. And then he says, deceivers come. Well, what are they saying? They're saying you don't have to keep the commandments. So he has to keep saying over and over again what the definition of love is, that you keep the commandments. So this is a lot deeper issue than just saying, well, uh, the commandments are done away or not done away. Or, no, wait a minute, what am I trying to say here? That confessing that he's Christ. It's much deeper than that. It has to do with the commandments. It has to do with what real love is. And that Christ is actually coming and living his life in us. Well, what did he do? He never sinned. That is, he never broke the commandment. So if he's living his life in us, then we have to keep the commandments. Or that's not his life. If we're breaking them, that's Satan's life being lived in us, not Christ's. They were missing that distinction and deceiving people and saying, well, you don't have to keep the commandments. Antichrist, against the way Christ lived and walked, which was in the commandments. And we have someone coming, we can have someone who came into the church who was Antichrist. We had learned of the things of Christ in keeping the commandments in that June or January 3rd sermon given by Joseph to Koch. He says the commandments are done away. We are not under the terms of the old covenant, which to him meant the commandments are done away. And you don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore, which is one of the Ten Commandments. So he was against Christ. He was an antichrist. And he stood in the temple of God and set himself above God. Did he not? When you say God's laws are done away with, you're setting yourself above God. That's what Satan did. God says, don't eat this. Satan says, go ahead. He's breaking the first commandment, and they broke the first commandment. 
So Joe Tatach was an antichrist in the church against Christ, against Christ's way of walking and doing. So we have many deceivers who've come into the church in the end time. And there are some right now on this property who are doing the exact same thing. We may get to that in a little bit. Yeah, we will. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have worked, but that we receive a full reward. So he says, examine yourself. Are you really walking in the love of God and the commandments of God, or are you not? You're not to lose those things that you've done. Now, John wrote the book of Revelation as well. And in chapter 3, verse 11, he said, Hold fast that which you have, that no one take your crown. That is, you don't lose what God has reserved for you. You've been called. Your name is in the book of life. You've been set aside, sanctified to be in the kingdom of God. And you will be if you don't let someone take your crown. A crown is already designed or, or being made ready for you. Maybe he isn't in the position yet of quite uh, designing it, but uh, it is set aside, let's say, for you, unless somehow you decide to go a different way. God won't take the crown away from you. You would abdicate it. You would have to give it up. You would have to lose it. See, there's only 144,000 who will be the bride of Christ. So there'll be 144,000 crowns. And he has to have the exact number of 144,000. So if you give up your crown, if you lose it, someone else will take it because he has to come up to the number. I think that's another proof in showing that the uh, first fruits are only 144,000. Not only does Zechariah 14.7 say, these are the first fruits, but here there are only so many crowns designated, and you can lose yours, so it has to be replaced. If the first resurrection were open to any number of people, then no one would need to take your crown. There'd be plenty for everybody and you wouldn't lose it and have someone else take it. But since it's a finite number and has to be an exact number, if you lose yours, someone else finds it. Someone else has it. It's awarded to someone else. So don't lose those things which you've learned. Well, where are we sitting today? We've learned, have we not? We're not Methodists and Baptists and Church of Christ and Catholics Mormons anymore, are we? We're not that. We've learned a different way. Well, that way that we have learned, we are not to depart from. Now, we have a younger generation of our children who grew up, let's say, in the church or coming to church, were born with their parents in the church, so they're coming up and they've been taught the right way. Well, to them, Protestantism, churchianity, this world's religions are new to them. Okay? So, they think they found something new. You know, they found the oldest thing. Protestantism began in the Garden of Eden. 
Well, some of them are going back to Protestantism and Judaism and some of those old, old religions that have been around forever, and it's all new to them. They think it's a new religion. They think they've just learned the truth. <laughs> but we know better. We're old and bald and white-haired, and we knew Protestantism long before. We were converted to that, to the truth. <laughs> so he's telling us, he was telling the ancient people in the church then, don't depart from what you've learned. Because it had been new to them too, just as it was to us. They'd been Jews and pagans and so on before. They'd learned the truth. Don't depart from it. Well, you and I have learned the truth. We're not to depart from it. And the truth is what we learned under Herbert Armstrong and what we've learned since uh, from the Scriptures that adds to what we learned from him. He gave us a lot of good basic truth and doctrine. So he goes on to say that this is a matter of doctrine. Verse 9, Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not of Christ. He has both the Father and the Son. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> then he gives instruction. If there come any to you and bring not this doctrine... Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Now, I think this is a very, very important verse for us to, con to consider. I memorized it all back in the 60s when I was doing a lot of visiting of brand new people who had just started hearing the broadcast or, or uh, received the plain truth or something, because uh, they either had an open mind that was willing to learn truth and real doctrine, or not. <laughs> and some of them were just playing church or trying to find a new religion, wasn't really open. And others just devoured everything you could tell them about the Bible. Their mind was just open, give me, give me, help me, help me, I want to know more. But they had to know this doctrine. And he does say in the first book, that if they don't hear us, they're not of God. So a lot of my judgments with those new people was whether they would hear those whom God had sent and whether they would follow the doctrines of Christ or they kept on with some of their old stuff. And this has to do a lot with government as well. Now, there are many churches who are congregational. That is, they are ruled by and governed by the congregation, more or less. Uh, board of deacons, board of elders, however they do it. Excuse me. One of the main things that God taught Herbert Armstrong was government. He showed him through many examples in the Bible that God always appointed men to lead other men and that he put them in charge and expected them to be followed. Whether you talk about Moses or Abraham or the apostles, uh, he told Peter that he was the one who was to be the leader of the church in that era. And the other apostles were subordinate to him. The only time that that uh, had any deviation at all was when Peter was in a big argument with Paul, 
And uh, Peter uh, recused himself from making the decision there and left it on James uh, because Peter was involved. But other than that, he was the one who made the final decisions. So, God's government is always hierarchical. He showed there in Ephesians 5 that he gave some apostles and others uh, prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers and so on. And that is in descending order of authority. And that can be seen in Paul's epistles quite clearly, where Paul, who was an apostle, was giving instruction to uh, Timothy, who was an evangelist. He was down in the order. And he instructed Timothy on how he was to handle the ministry and the elders uh, that were in his area of of, uh, overall direction, the churches that were under his direction as a superintendent, if you will. So God shows that all the way through. But now we have people who are going back to Protestantism uh, in the church. Joseph Tkach did it. Many, many in the church did it. And we have people right here who are doing it. They're taking various forms of it. Uh, In some cases, they're saying we're all apostles or that we the people have to vote and the majority vote tells us what to do. Now, is that what you find in the Bible? Not at all. It's not in there. Uh, Then others don't take it quite so far, but they've have formed a board of directors to direct uh, a church that they have formed, that they have taken one of the names we used to use informally some. (coughs) So they have a board of directors. You don't find that in the Bible. There's not a... God never set up a board of directors. He never set up uh, a a board of deacons. Uh, His church, all through the Bible has been hierarchical, always. And yet, we have people here who are trying to take over this church, and they're having, they're trying to get the court to disband this church, to declare it null and void, and that they will take over its assets, and that they will be governed by a board of directors. Now, they don't get around along among themselves, because some think they have to be just a total majority. Others think they should have a board of directors. Was that board of directors appointed by Christ, or did they appoint themselves? Where did God send them to do that? Where did God authorize them to do that? Who ordained them to do that? That is utter and total presumption. I read an article that Herbert Armstrong wrote uh, after the state of California attacked in January on January 3rd of 1979. Takacha's sermon was January 7th, 95. Did I say 3rd? It was the 7th. But Herbert Armstrong wrote that letter uh, in on January 3rd of 1979, and it was about Romans 13. Uh, because some have said you should never go against any government because uh, God set them all in place. Well, he says we are all to be subservient to government so long as it doesn't disobey God. We are to obey God rather than man, Acts 5.29. But he says he set the governments there and he even put the basest of men over them. 
And that so long as the governments of this world do not cause us to err from truth or put them ahead of God, we are to obey them. <coughs> However, in January of 79, the church was dealing with a different matter. Here you had six dissident members who had been disfellowshipped from the Worldwide Church of God who went to the state of California and asked them to take over and set a receivership in place. Uh, they were trying to destroy the church. That's what they were trying to do. Six members, ex-members. So the state of California came in to examine the books. They appointed a receiver and tried to take over. Well, Herbert Armstrong fought that. He was in Tucson because of his health issues at the time, but we all began sending our tithes and offerings to Tucson, and the receiver didn't have anything to operate with. And in his letter, he says, we sent just enough money to pass it in each month, <coughs> excuse me, to pay the bills. And the receiver didn't have anything to work with. So they fought the state of California. Well, that was the, that was the government, wasn't it? It was dissident members plus the government. And he fought that tooth and toenail, and eventually won. And they, the state of California backed off and dismissed it, because it was illegal, and it was unrighteous. Now, they were trying to destroy the Church of God, those dissident members. And the, church, and the state of California joined in on it to destroy the Church of God. They came close to doing it, but the church prevailed, and it lived on, and it's still alive today. Now, are we to fight against those who come against us, including the government, whether it be county or state or feds? Yes, we are. Who are they fighting? They're fighting God. They're fighting God's church. They're fighting the ones that God has duly ordained to lead that church. They tried to get rid of Herbert Armstrong, whom God had appointed to lead that era of the church. And he fought it. He wasn't going to give in to them. Now, what are the Bible examples? What about David and Goliath? Here came the Philistine government. We're going to take over Israel. And David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who would take over the church of uh, the, the nation of Israel? Or the church of God in modern terms. And he fought and killed him. <laughs> he got rid of him. Now, Zechariah 1 tells us that there will come some here at the end time, just before the two witnesses appear, where there are four uh, dividers, separators, destroyers, I'm going to turn back and read that right quick. Zechariah 1. Here God has been jealous over Jerusalem, and he's warned at the beginning of this very chapter not to reject the prophets that God sends, not to be like your fathers of old who did that. Well, it's a, Zechariah begins with a very dire warning. And then... What about these 70 years, he says? When we fasted 70 years, we tried to turn to God. Uh, when are you going to restore blessing? And then he says in verse 16, 
I am returned to Jerusalem with mercy, my house shall be built in it, says the Eternal of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. That's the church. Then he says, Cry yet, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, My cities, through good or through prosperity, shall yet be spread abroad, and the Eternal shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Now, it's not going to look like it, but he's going to. That's why he says he will yet do so. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel that talked with me, what be these? Now, what's our context here? Haggai was written, and God said he was going to send the two witnesses and a 10% remnant of the church to rebuild the temple, okay? Zechariah began his message right in the middle, time-wise, in the eighth month, of Haggai's message. Haggai started, then Zechariah started, then Haggai finished, and after that, Zechariah finished his book. So the context is the end-time church and the two witnesses, okay? So when he is going to stretch forth and restore Jerusalem is during the time of the end, very shortly now. So he says, Then lifted up my eyes, verse 18, and saw and beheld four horns. So this is in the same context, just prior to the two witnesses in and that story begins in chapter 2, 3, and 4. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So here, right at the end, there are going to be four main leaders who will scatter the church, that which God has duly appointed and told to do certain things. And the Eternal showed me four carpenters. Then said I, what come these to do? What are these four carpenters about? Well, what do carpenters do? They build, don't they? Buildings, roads, and so on. Carpenters are builders. Destroyers are those who would uh, would scatter. That's, that's demolition. <laughs> that's destroying what has been built. The builders... Carpenters build instead of destroy. There's a, they're absolute opposites of each other. Then said I, what come these to do? And he spoke, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. A time of shame, a time of destruction, a time of scattering, a time where things look pretty grim. But these are come to fray them and to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. Well, Judah, we know, is the church. Hebrews 12, 22, and 23. Spiritual Israel, spiritual Judah is the church. So here, in the context of the two witnesses, in the church that is about to be brought together, there will be four main leaders who scatter, who destroy. And then there will be four who fray them and cast them out. Look up the word fray, and it means to, to scare away like buzzards from a kill. These particular buzzards are trying to kill the church. And they are to be scared away. 
and cast out. Not only scared, but cast out as well. So there is a time in the very, very near future when some who have set their hand to take over, to destroy, to scatter, to diminish, that which has been built are going to be frayed and cast out. Now we can go back to First John. Because this is a very, what John is writing is very much about uh, the end of the era in his day. And then he wrote about, in the book of Revelation, the end of this era. So he wrote to the people at the end of his era, and he wrote to us who are at the end of this era. The book of Revelation is all about the end time church. It's about the faithful. It's about the two witnesses. It's about all the plagues and everything to come here at the end. So he says, if they're coming and bring not this doctrine, don't receive them into your house, neither bid them Godspeed. So, right here we have people who have denied the government of God uh, for whatever form they want to take, and it varies as you go around the place here. Some no government except themselves. And they say, we don't need teachers, and then they try to teach. Uh, a couple of them have actually even been on another uh, phone network giving sermons, uh, apart from us. So they say, one says we're all apostles, another says there's no teachers, don't need men, don't need teachers, and then he gives sermons and writes articles. So that's, that's two elements right there, a little bit different way of looking at it. And then the other one is those who would have a board of directors that they appoint and that they set without God's approval, without being duly ordained to be in charge and not being directed to do so. In other words, they're supplanters trying to take over and they have filed a petition just like dissident members did, ex-members, and these are ex-members. They are not members of a congregation of God, a free church. Make no mistake about it. They're trying to claim it so that they can take over its assets. But at the same time, in their complaint, they ask the judge to disallow the church and to dissolve it so that they can take over the assets. So they're contradicting themselves by saying they're still members and then asking them, they actually ask in the complaint that the judge make them members, which is an admission that they aren't now members. And that then he dissolved, he dissolved it and put in a receivership. Exact same thing that the dissident ex-members in the state of California did before. Here it's some ex-members who have gone to the county instead of the state. But it's the same thing. Same exact thing. <laughs> denying the government of God and denying the, the, denying the hierarchy that God set. This congregation has never had but one pastor. And he was appointed directly by God. Not by anyone else. Ordained personally by Herbert Armstrong and all the headquarters evangelists and later given a commission directly from God. Now, have any of these people been given that? No, they haven't. Now, I don't speak out on this much. I like to, I'd rather just keep things personally quiet. But Herbert Armstrong wasn't a bit bashful to tell you who he was and what God had called him to do, was he? He said it all the time. 
he had been given a commission, and so have I. And when they try to destroy that, they're doing exactly the same thing that people did to Herbert Armstrong and to Worldwide Church of God. And they couldn't get it done themselves, so they called on the civil government to help them do it. State of California. And these have called on Mojave County to help them do it. And the court system. Which is totally contrary to Scripture as well. But they're not brothers anymore. We need to understand that. They are not brothers in the church. They are not members of the church of God. They have departed from the truth of God. And he tells us right here, if they bring not this doctrine, for John was teaching, and that was he was the elder, the only one remaining. Don't receive them into your house, neither bid them Godspeed. They're not welcome in my house, they will not be allowed in, and I certainly will not bid them Godspeed or God's blessing, because they are contrary to God, and they're anti-government, and they're anti-Christ with their doctrine of government. They don't believe in hierarchical government. They believe in a board of directors. They formed one. So let's not be deceived or mistaken, and let's call a spade a spade. This is exactly what happened to Worldwide Church of God. For he that... Uh, bids him Godspeed as partaker of his evil deeds. If we wish them well. If we wish them Godspeed or God's blessing. Then he says we are partially responsible for what they're doing. So don't go there. <laughs> now we are to love our enemies individually. But sometimes God's love is a little different than we sometimes think. David loved Israel, and he killed Goliath. <laughs> uh, we have four main leaders here who are trying, scattering, destroyed, tried to destroy this church, and are still doing it by court order, trying to do it. It says that they are to be scared away like buzzards and cast out. And that's going to happen. Because that's a prophecy that has to be fulfilled in some way, some form, some fashion, very soon. Because it is in the end time context, and we're at the end time. And this whole world is about to come unwound. Uh, things are looking very, very dicey in this country right now, and in the world as a whole. So it's talking about right now. Anyway, he continues, verse 12, Having many things to write to you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. So mother and sister as well, the church is depicted. Now let's cover Third John. It's very short. And there's one main message here. And part of it's the message I just gave you. The elder, perhaps the only one left, under the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love, in the truth. So he wrote this specifically to one of the leaders in another congregation. <laughs> he said, Behold, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. So he wished him good. 
It says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, even as you walked in the truth. He kept the commandments. So, who would John write to? One that had been reported to be faithful is who he would write to. And he has a message for him. We'll see. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So, uh, he was feeling very good that he had someone he could depend upon at a time of a great falling away, and many were departing. Beloved, you do faithfully whatsoever you do to the brethren and to strangers. So, he says it's a great joy to know you're there. Be sure to be faithful to everyone you come across, which have borne witness of your love before the church, whom if you bring forward uh, on their journey after a godly sort, you shall do well. So he was keeping the commandments. He did have love for the people of God. And he was encouraging them to continue that line of work. Because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. Now there were some who willingly worked and helped. Paul himself even uh, went into new areas and didn't take anything at, uh, at times. Ties or whatever. <coughs> but worked building tents to show that he was not just after their money. We tried to do the same thing here in the early years. Uh, worldwide had gotten off balance and off base on that. We're always pleading for money and send more money and do more of this. And, and uh, at the feast it got for the, the offering became a farce, in my opinion, because uh, God had told us to come to the feast and bring an offering before God and to give that which we were able and to prepare it and to pray over it, to, to bring it and not to come before him empty at the holy days or at the feasts. We read those scriptures over and over through all those years and worldwide. But what they came to do was to try to to grab more money, extort money, if you will, out of the people by telling them, well, give what you brought and then give more. Now let's have a noisy offering with the change. Now let's have a silent offering with all the dollar bills you got in your pocket and Let's beat Anchorage or let's beat Pasadena or all the garbage they went through to try to get more money out of people. And to me, it always rankled because I thought, here's somebody who saved for months maybe so that they could bring an offering before God and to bring it cheerfully. And then when you're browbeaten to give more than you thought you could, that takes all the joy and the happiness and the cheerfulness out of giving because you feel like you're guilty because you couldn't give more. You can't be thankful for what you could give, but you'd be guilty for not giving more. So we tried to change that right here in this congregation from 2000 on. I rarely even mention offerings at the feast. I've made the only announcement generally I'll make the offering boxes over there on the on the table if you know if you don't know where it is, or maybe sort of a reminder, but uh, very little said, and we certainly don't try to get you to give more, and we don't take it up and we don't count it during services. 
so that the deacons and elders can't hear the sermon because they're busy counting money. Because Pasadena's worried about how much they're going to get. I don't even bother to count the offering until after that Sabbath is over. Uh, the, the, whole, the high days, the holy days. Why, why do I need to count money? What difference, it make, what difference does it make come next day or three days later when you put it in the bank? It's not going to change the amount that's there. So why do I need to know on the Sabbath? Why even bother with money on the Sabbath? I mean, that's something people bring and give, and it's okay to give it on the Sabbath. But I don't need to concern my, my mind and my emotions with how much there is. So we tried to make it as cheap as we could for everybody here and to keep pressure off money. We tried to keep the rent on the lots as low as we could get on the lease. We had to raise it once. And I consulted with everybody before we did it in order to make the, the land mortgage and so on. But it's the amount that's being received now by rent and taxes does not pay all the costs, it never has. I've had to take out the tithes and offerings to do a lot of the maintenance and so on that has been done on this property. But I have tried always not to ask people to give more than they already were. <coughs> the emphasis is not on money, and it hasn't been in this congregation. Just as he was saying here, there were those who came and spoke to the Gentiles and worked with them, but they took nothing of them. And we've taken as little as we possibly can and still survived. Well, people think I'm getting rich off this little congregation. Give me a break. Do some math. Learn a little addition and subtraction and multiplication and you'll find out it ain't there. <laughs> Verse 8. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. So as people come and they want to learn, we need to be helpful to them, not for money's sake. Uh, the emphasis isn't money, but for the truth's sake. So then he gets to what he's really after in verse 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, receives us not. So here he had the same thing that Paul wrote about. Uh, Paul named Alexander the coppersmith as one who had done much harm to what he was trying to accomplish. And here John writes about Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence. He wants to be put forth as a leader, to have control, to take charge. So he was fighting the same thing then that we are now. And he says he, he wants to have preeminence, and he receives us not. So he had, this Diotrephes had rejected John the Apostle. How do you do that? I mean, maybe you can reject me, I ain't nothing. But how do you reject John the Apostle? I mean, he had been duly ordained of Christ himself, had been appointed an apostle. And that history was known. But here was Diotrephes, who had blown himself up in his own vanity, and was rejecting the only remaining apostle of God, and would not receive him. Didn't want him around, trying to get rid of him. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. 
all kinds of malice and hate and bitterness and anger against John. And not content therewith, neither does he himself receive the brethren and forbids them that would and cast them out of the church. So he had attained a certain status wherever he was, and he would not recognize true members, but was kicking them out, including John. So he was trying to get rid of the leadership Christ had appointed and trying to get rid of true members and have preeminence in a following of his own. Board of directors, whatever you want. What does a board of directors do? Well, it directs people. So by, by establishing that, you are saying that you want to direct things. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, and departing from the hierarchical government of God is evil. And that's what Diotrephes was doing. But follow that which is good. He that does good is of God, but he that does evil has not seen, doesn't understand, doesn't know God. And Diotrephes was one of those. So he took this opportunity to write to Gaius and to tell him, stay away from Diotrephes, and then he recommends someone. Verse 12, Demetrius has good report of all men and of the truth itself. So the members were happy with Demetrius, and Demetrius had retained the truth, which these people are losing. Somebody just uh, gave me a list that they had compiled of about 24 things that they had already come up with. The people on this very property have come to disagree with us on and still claim that they're members of this congregation. No, they aren't. They don't walk as we walked. If you walk together, you have to be in agreement. And if you don't, aren't in agreement, you don't walk together. They're not walking with us. They're walking somewhere else. They're walking a different walk. They're different than us. Now, I'm not saying all these things just to toot my or your horn. I'm saying these things because they're Scripture. He was facing the same thing. And it says that the two witnesses in the end-time church are going to be facing the same thing. So what we're experiencing here is age-old. Same thing Moses experienced with uh, Korah and Nathan and Abiram and those who opposed him. Exact same thing. Nothing different. Herbert Armstrong faced it. And he faced it. We're facing exactly what he went through. And so was John with Diotrephes. So then he recommended Demetrius. He's still following the truth. Yes, and we also bear record, and you know that our record is true. So he's, he's defending himself here. And he's saying Demetrius is following the truth. I recommend him. And he's saying that our own record is true, that his record was true. So even as Paul had to defend himself, as John defended himself, Herbert Armstrong defended himself, we have to defend ourselves. We've been called here to do something. And those who have dissented and trying to destroy what has been built here are doing exactly what Diotrephes and Alexander the Coppersmith were doing. Now, they think they're walking in righteousness, but I got news for them. So were those six members, ex-members, who attacked Herbert Armstrong. 
They thought they were walking in truth and God was on their side. No, He was not. They don't bring this doctrine. Don't receive them and don't bid them Godspeed. And I know that the record is true here of what we're doing. Why destroy what's here? In the first place. If you don't like what's here, go build your own. But don't try to destroy what's here. It's not so much that they want to destroy what's here as they want to take over what's here. And in order to take over, they feel they have to destroy. That's what it's all about. They want the land. It's greed. It's jealousy. It's maliciousness. It's anger against something that God has built. And I believe God built this congregation. I believe that with my whole heart. And I don't believe it's failed. I believe a lot of people have failed. But I believe this is going to continue. Just as John believed and hoped that things would continue. Well, they came down to almost nothing by the time he died. But God revived and God restored. And that's what you and I have read about in the prophecies. God is going to restore. And he's going to add children for those which were taken away in Isaiah 54. So it's going to turn out right in the long run. Maybe some tough sledding in the meantime, but hey, everybody's gone through that. All the apostles went through it. The prophets went through it. Herbert Armstrong went through it. And he, a sick man with a heart that was about to quit at the time. Verse 13, I have many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write to you. But I trust I shall shortly see you, and we shall speak face to face. That was his goal and his desire. I don't know that it ever happened. Probably didn't, because he was getting very old at this point. Peace be to you. Our friends salute you. Greet your friends by name. So acknowledge those by name who truly are friends, but don't bid Godspeed and accept any of those who are not friends because they are not following the truth anymore. They're departing from it. So we'll end this series here uh, and uh, get on to some more things later.